Hi everyone, it's Katie. Before we start the episode, I want to thank all of you who have listened to Psychodrama. We started this podcast one year ago, March 23rd, 2020, and it's meant so much to us to be able to create these episodes for you and to interact with you and hear from you. So thank you so much for your support. Leo and I are really grateful. Next, I want to introduce our guest, who I was really excited to have on for this episode. His name is Dr. Jonathan Steya. He is a Ph.D. licensed psychologist or registered psychologist in Canada, and he's an adjunct assistant professor. Clinically, he works in a tertiary care outpatient clinic that specializes in the assessment and treatment of concurrent addictive and psychiatric disorders. He is interested in topics related to science communication and health misinformation in popular media, especially with respect to addiction and mental health. He is a coalition member of hashtag ScienceUpFirst, that's at ScienceUpFirst.com, which is a Canadian-wide awareness and engagement initiative that creates, distributes, and amplifies best-in-class science-informed content surrounding COVID-19 and the COVID-19 vaccine. Psychodrama Podcast. This is Katie Gordon. And this is Leo Bobadilla, which still runs with Quesadilla. <laughs> How are you <laughs> doing today, Leo? You're bringing it back. Do, bring, doing very well. Doing very well. How about you, Katie? I'm good. I'm super excited to talk to our expert guest today, yeah. Dr. Jonathan Steya. And so we will be bringing him on in just a moment to ask him some questions. And this is kind of a follow-up to our last episode, which focused on decriminalizing drugs. And so now we want to talk about mental health addiction and if there are any potential downsides that aren't regularly discussed with decriminalizing drugs. Precisely. This is is a very good, timely topic for many reasons. And I think it is important to, as we like to do in in our show, to bring some balance to all of the um, points of view, because in debates, it's often people tend to emphasize in whatever supports their point of view, and it's um, kind of our brand to try to take a nuanced approach to issues. So, yeah, I'm excited about this talk. So, welcome, Dr. Jonathan Steya. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Katie and Lito. I'm yeah, it's obviously great to have you. Big fan, and uh, really honored and humbled to be here. Thank you. Oh no, that's awesome. We're so very excited. Yeah, we thought we'd start off by just asking how you became interested in clinical psychology and addiction in particular. Right. So a bit of history. Um, I think my interest in psychology probably began in high school, you know, during those very normal periods of existential teenage angst that I think (laughs) 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 trying to resolve our our identity crises. Um, It was it was cool, though, because in high school we we were fortunate to have an intro philosophy class, which I don't know how common that is, but for me, that was really an impetus. Uh, and my intro to the idea that studying topics like the mind and who we are are actually formalized into academic disciplines. So prior to that, I was pretty much a newbie. Um, but from there, I went to the University of Toronto uh, for my undergraduate work. 
And there I really became immersed in the history and philosophy of science um, and really just drawn more to the, the scientific and practical and clinical aspects of, of psychology. So, you know, I was immersed in philosophy of science and subjects like abnormal psychology. And so clinical psych just started to make a lot of sense. And then uh, similarly, with respect to addiction, um, well, let's just say I saw a lot of it during my adolescence in my young adulthood and, you know, like a like a moth to a flame. I was always fascinated <laughs> by it and, and curious about it, particularly about cannabis addiction. So mm-hmm. for my uh, graduate work, I, I went to the University of Calgary. I worked with um, Dr. David Hodgins, who's uh, uh, an expert on addictive disorders. And, you know, he was fascinated by cannabis addiction as well. And so that became the focus of my graduate work. And then I'd say clinically, you know, um, during my career as a student and then and then beyond, I, I've worked with people experiencing all sorts of addiction for over 10 years now, including in forensic settings. And I've I've been a full time clinician and uh, blessed to work with a really fantastic team. Uh, we specialize in the treatment of concurrent addictive and psychiatric disorders. So I've been in this clinic for over uh, seven years. And, you know, I say our clinic is is great because it's well, it's in the public sector, but we're we're really an interdisciplinary team. So we got psychologists and psychiatrists and addiction medicine physicians and nurses and you know nurse practitioners, social work, OT, all of it, and really amazing, ethical, thoughtful students and residents. So, um, yeah, great. I feel really blessed to work in an integrated team like that. And it's my when story you talk, for when uh, you talk about the the clinic, is it uh, just to paint a picture to perhaps with listeners? Is it with most people perhaps think of like a clinic within a hospital or a hospital setting, but you're talking more of a community clinical uh, clinic. It, it actually isn't in a hospital setting. So <laughs> it's going to miss. Yeah, we're, we're considered tertiary care. So ah, we have, okay. we have our general mental health clinics and then we're kind of a bit uh, a level up in a step care model. So if people have a concurrent uh, severe, moderate to severe addictive and psychiatric disorders, and you know, they, they need that kind of integrated team with psychiatry that they got they get referred to us got it and could you talk maybe a little just and a little bit uh, about the the type of kind of if you were to talk about your population the population of the people that come through the doors what do you guys usually see like you know what percentages of people maybe you know unhoused yeah that's that's a great question so we're with respect to clinical presentation we're treating moderate to severe um concurrent disorder so with addiction obviously number one is alcohol that's probably the most that we see cannabis is up there mm-hmm. um you know followed probably by opioid and and, and benzodiazepines um c- concurrent with depressive disorders anxiety disorders psychotic disorders personality disorders so we see all of that the the demographic probably reflects um our city which is calgary mm-hmm. alberta so um we do we do get uh um, people that are homeless and experiencing, you know, lower socioeconomic status. And, but I wouldn't say that's predominant. I'd say we're probably a middle-class population. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, and it's a concurrent disorder outpatient clinic, just to be mm-hmm. clear. And I'm, I'm curious that um, what kind of misconceptions you've come across related to addiction and the treatment of addiction, because one thing that I really appreciate about your work, and I should say, I um, know quote unquote, no Jonathan through Twitter, because I've seen the wonderful amount of work you've put into disseminating scientifically accurate, compassionate mental health information. And I feel like addiction is one of those areas where there is so much stigma. There are so many misconceptions uh, going back probably just 
maybe since the beginning of humans using substances. And so I appreciate that you debunk a lot of those misconceptions. So what are what are some of the main ones that you see? Thanks for saying that, Katie. That means a lot. And um, yeah, there's it's a great question. There's so many. There's so many misconceptions <laughs> related to addiction. I, I I'd probably say, you know, the most common one relates to the very nature of addiction itself. Like what exactly is it? You know, misinformation about addiction is it's rampant both in popular media and social media. You can tell just by looking at news headlines and looking at discussions like on, on Twitter or social media, because the language that gets used um, to describe addiction is so variable and it can be confusing mm-hmm. to a lot of people. So you see you see medical professionals, journalists, uh, general public using terms like addiction, dependence, abuse, misuse, habit forming, uh, recreational use, you know, medicinal use and so on. And so I I noticed that and I, I wrote a piece um, in, I think it was in, in, psychology, in psychology Today and Scientific American about the distinction between addiction and dependence, because I think that's a really big mm. uh, misconception that's often confused. And and when I was looking into this, you know, it's confusing for really good reason. And, and that's because the the professionals kind of muddied the water, so to speak, when developing the DSM. You know, briefly, as you know, um, the DSM three and four, they used uh, substance dependence as a proxy for addiction. And that's because the committee members believed that the word addiction was pejorative. Mm-hmm. But, but then in the DSM five, uh, the categories of dependence and abuse became collapsed into substance mm-hmm. use disorder and then they introduced the chapter heading called substance related and addictive disorders and they purposely added the phrase addictive again um, primarily to address gambling disorder um, but the really confusing part which is understandable for many people is that the the term dependence you know prior to the dsm3 just meant physiological dependence so mm-hmm. as indicated by tolerance and withdrawal but then the dsm3 and 4 came along and so then ultimately the medical world was left with these two very different definitions of dependence. One signified, you know, your basic physical, physiological dependence. Mm-hmm. And then you had this other more complicated kind of biopsychosocial dependence, which in reality was the proxy used to diagnose addiction. So mm-hmm. that that difference to me was a really huge conception. And I, I see it play out all the time, um, even clinically. Um, related to that topic, there's another misconception that I've heard. Uh, throughout my career is that cannabis addiction doesn't exist. (laughs) Right. That one really irks me because I've written a uh, a lot about it. And and again, it was a focus in my graduate work. But but again, it's no wonder that people can become confused by this because the scientific construct of addiction has a really complex history and the concept um, is muddy because its meaning has had many iterations over time. Uh, so addiction, the term addiction is very loaded, but I, I've used it really intentionally and on purpose when talking about cannabis, because my reading of the literature points to its existence any way that you define it. So whether you think of it as more uh, as a brain disease with physiological components like tolerance and withdrawal, or whether you introduce the more um, um, phenomena rooted in, in psychosocial phenomena, so your, your features of loss of control and um, negative consequences and your functional impairment. Any which way it's read, cannabis addiction exists. And then mm-hmm. I, I notice related to that, when you, um, a, a corollary misconception that you might hear with patients or with the general public is that sometimes people concede that cannabis dependence is possible, but not addiction. 
but again, I think um, that's not true because much of it is semantics. And w- when I hear people say that cannabis dependence can exist but not addiction, mm. what I what they tend they don't really mean f- physiological dependence. They mean something like it can be habit forming. And ironically, mm. cannabis dependence exists in both senses of the terms. It can be habit forming through your basic you know behavioral psychology principles, and it can also um, produce physiological dependence because we have mm. an endocannabinoid system, uh, etc. Oh, there, there's a lot to it. And thank, that's, thank you so much. There's so, there's so much to unpack when Katie was asking regard, regarding, um, I'm really glad you went that in that, this avenue, but she, when she mentioned about misconceptions and when you started talking about your clientele, even that, I would say, I, I'll admit in my own mind when I figured, you know, what does your clientele look like? Immediately my mind went to perhaps opioids because that's the current kind of, in the zeitgeist, in the, in the environment, there's a lot of attention to opioid addiction. But then you started with, we see a lot of opioids, oh, I'm sorry, we see a lot of um cannabinoids or marijuana and alcohol and we kind of forget about that giant chunk of, of people who have problems with addiction and uh, dependence which is alcohol and then i really like how you talk about uh, uh, the misconceptions regarding marijuana because that is certainly one that you know in talking about going back to high school in which um uh, the people who certainly start having friends who start using it like it's not a problem because it's not addictive and it's natural um, so that <laughs> that's a really good misconception to talk about. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that too. And one thing I wanted to ask you about is the idea of self-medication. You said that you treat people with concurrent disorders. What What is your opinion on that idea that people with depression or anxiety are self-medicating and that that can lead to an addiction or dependence? Is that Does that happen in that direction in your observation? Yeah, I, I think it absolutely does. And are you asking with respect to cannabis, Katie? Oh, yes. Yeah, sorry about that. I, I, I'm jumping ahead a little bit um, to a piece that you wrote that I really appreciate about cannabis being helpful or harmful and kind of thinking about if do you see a particular order in the way those concurrent disorders develop? Do you find that usually the depression or anxiety or whatever it is comes first and then that's followed by addiction or does it go the other direction? Mm-hmm. Good question. Gotcha. Yeah. It, it's such an important question and it comes up clinically all the time too. And so I guess the, the first thing I'd say though about, about cannabis is because cannabis is so fascinating because it's so complicated and really it's an umbrella term. So mm-hmm. I like to think of it kind of like a chemical soup. It has like over 500 ingredients and it can be served in different combinations and permutations but mm, uh, chemical as a, as a, soup as a, <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but as, as a general statement you know with respect to mental health i i think one of the the biggest points that we we tend to drive home um uh, therapeutically uh is that therapy does not equal reinforcement and i think that's such an important idea so in other words it's important not to conflate both the positive and negative reinforcing or rewarding properties of cannabis with its potential therapeutic effect. So in in more other words, what what I'm trying to say is we know that cannabis can be positively reinforcing and rewarding because we know it can hit dopaminergic reward circuitry and and produce feelings of euphoria. And we also know that cannabis can be negatively reinforcing because it can take away or provide temporary Mm. relief from negative emotional states. Right. when someone uses cannabis or, or any substance for that matter to achieve temporary symptomatic relief, that doesn't necessarily mean that the substance is therapeutic, especially if continued use exacerbates or maintains a mental disorder rather than right. resolve it. And it's these very 
uh, very behavioral principles of classical and operant conditioning that, that we know do play a role in the development of addiction. And, you know, because we don't want to train the brain to respond to uncomfortable, uncomfortable emotions with substance use, because if mm. we do that, say over 100 trials, you know, pairing cannabis and uncomfortable emotions, the brain's going to salivate, so to speak, for cannabis mm-hmm. in the form of cravings the next mm-hmm. time an uncomfortable emotion is experienced. And you can see a more clear cut case of this with the benzodiazepines, which are often uh, unfortunately used, um, given for uh, short-term relief of anxiety. But we know that if they're used long-term to manage anxiety uh, disorders, that it can make anxiety worse and can often lead to uh, benzodiazepine addiction. And so given that those reinforcing properties of cannabis, it's no wonder that one uh, particularly um, at risk population mm-hmm. for developing cannabis addiction is people with mental disorders. And mm-hmm. there was a really great review of this topic by uh, Jake Bordowski and Alan Budney, and they put mm-hmm. a number on it. They noted across several cross sectional and longitudinal studies that cannabis users with mental disorders are about twice as likely as cannabis users without mental disorders to have or develop an addiction. And that makes sense, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that's yeah, that's a, that's an important point to perhaps highlight is that there is to take a nuanced view is that there may be people who may not have psychological disorders who are able to use cannabis recreationally uh, or casually and be perhaps okay kind of enhances their positive moods during those times or de-stresses them like a glass of wine would sometimes. However, just like people who may have depression or anxiety who use alcohol to cope, um, they, it can it can lead to excess. Uh, reliance on the substance to avoid uh, the negative emotions and perhaps because of the chemical properties of this substance itself, it worsens the anxiety or depressive problem. Is that more or less the, the, the take home? Yes, 100%. And, and, um, okay. and you use the word coping and there's another angle here which comes from the, there's a whole uh, kind of sub-literature on coping motives and that's kind of born out of the work of Sherry Stewart who was at Dalhousie University. She started this in the alcohol literature and then it, it got applied to cannabis. And I think there was a recent, um, not a meta-analysis or it, w- it was a review on cannabis coping motives. And basically what that entire literature says is just what you said, which is that coping motives are more likely to be risky in terms of leading to uh, addiction as opposed to other kinds of motives like enhancement motives or social related motives. So um, it's the coping one that you kind of mm. watch out for. And, and mm-hmm. with respect to temporary um, symptomatic relief, which again makes sense because it could also interfere with therapy too. Other evidence-based approaches to therapy, like if you're doing exposure, say for anxiety disorders, you don't want someone to be using a substance to get rid of the feeling of anxiety because that's, mm. that's interfering with exposure-based therapies. Right, right. Yeah, and we should note for our listeners who are, may not be psychologists or therapists that uh, when people are having anxiety disorder, the treatment of choice, the, the most empirically-based treatment is exposure. That is exposing, the, you know, in a comfortable environment that is supportive. Uh, the person to the to the fear or the anxiety that they have. So let's just for simplifying, if they have a fear to spiders, to expose them to a spider slowly until the ex- the, the anxiety subsides or at least it's manageable. So by not facing their anxiety and relying on uh, cannabis, the anxiety gets worse for the person as it does the the substance use problem. 
Yeah. De- definitely. I should yeah. say all that too, because I, I love uh, Leo how you said. I mean, you you guys said that your whole mandate is nuanced discussion, and that's that's also the best approach to cannabis too, because that's for the first part of the show. We we we, we engage in just uh, uh, <laughs> target. We antagonize the guest in the second part and just completely blindside him with questions. <laughs> <that don't expect. laughs> Lure them into the nuance. Lure them in, and then <laughs> pow, baby, it's crossfire. <laughs> Well, just just all that to say that this needs to be balanced in the context of other literature also showing um, the promise in terms of uh, there are therapeutic um, benefits to cannabis depending on condition and depending on, you know, things like cannabinoids. Um, so there, it's oh, not nice. it's not all bad, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And so <laughs> I think it's a, that's a great kind of segue for one of the things we want to ask you is, so where do you fall in, in, in taking all of the benefits, the, the drawbacks and everything, where do you fall in the, in the decriminalization of drugs? Because that was our last episode was precisely um, reading a, an article advocating for the decriminalization and legalization of all, all drugs. So where do you, what are your views uh, in, in that particular topic? Yeah, yeah, another great question. I used to avoid this one for years because it was so. Ah, here but, comes uh, the crossfire, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's such an important topic and, and a really timely one. And I don't want to overstep my bounds because I don't have expertise in public policy, but I, I can speak from the perspective of a clinical psychologist and an addiction researcher and a clinician. And I, I really find this topic fascinating because for me personally, it's a topic where my opinion shifted over time. Like So during my early days as a graduate student, I was working in an addictive behaviors lab, and I was literally studying the harms associated with addiction, including cannabis. So during those days, my beliefs, were, they were ambivalent. They remained ambivalent, but more tilted towards the idea that drugs should remain illegal, because at that time, it just made sense to me that if people had predispositions to developing addiction, then why would we, we wouldn't want to increase access and availability. But then... I became, throughout my work and throughout my clinic, clinical work and academic work, I became increasingly engaged and, and more immersed in the scientific literature, especially uh, the harm reduction folks like Alan Marlat and the work of mm. the Sobels around non-abstinence-based treatment goals. And so my beliefs changed. And it was a really an interesting shift as I gained an understanding of harm reduction philosophy and you know the idea that people will use drugs whether we want them to or not. And, and who the hell are we to say that they should or not? And and clinically, I saw how disadvantaging it was to patient care to have past or legal involvement. Um, you know, if, if someone has a criminal record that can hinder employment uh, during recovery, and right. that's a big part of recovery, you know, having a probation officer with strict abstinence-based conditions, that sometimes interfered with uh, a patient feeling like they can be honest with me during treatment. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. all that to say, I've, I've really arrived at a place of agreeing with the authors of the article that you discussed in so far as I do believe that the personal use and possession of, of uh, small quantities of, of drugs should be decriminalized and that patients shouldn't go to jail for an experience of addiction. That said, I also do agree with, again, the topic is nuanced and it's hard to make sweeping generalizations here and it ought to mm-hmm. depend on things like particular risk benefit profiles. So, you know, we wouldn't want someone who's, you know, actively has a severe psychotic disorder. You know, it's not a good idea for them to have you know, easy access to high dose psilocybin. Um, mm-hmm. But for the most part, I, I do think decriminalization is a really, really important thing. And I, I think fear of the unknown is a big driver that keeps drugs illegal. And I'm, I'm so grateful to the researchers and policy folks that devote themselves to sorting these, these issues out. 
And, and of course, the other entire complicated layer here, um, which you guys discussed in your last episode, is the entire racist and systemic discrimination context. So right. that just adds another layer of complexity here. It, as a shorthand, I like to say that addiction, I don't know, I don't know where this comes from, but I hear it a lot and I, I just love it. Addiction is a public health issue. It's not a criminal one. Absolutely. Very well said. Where you're at in Calgary, what are what are some of the policies around drugs? Yeah. Well, in in Canada, cannabis is legalized now. Mm-hmm. At the federal level, correct? At, at the federal level, yeah. So, Uh-oh, um, Katie has fainted. <laughs> Fortunately, so, I keep a fainting count on me. Fortunately. <laughs> you should see the amount of stores that pop up around here. Like, they're everywhere. Oh, yeah. they're, they're almost as common, probably more common as, um, as liquor stores. Interesting. Um, yeah, but um, so cannabis is legal, but but the rest uh, is is still um, scheduled to my knowledge. There's um, we don't have decriminalization of of other substances like like the opioids um, um, for for illicit purposes unless prescribed. Do you find that the misconception that people cannot develop a cannabis addiction or cannabis dependence um, hinders people seeking treatment? And that they're they don't view themselves as having a problem, even if they're struggling with cannabis, just because of the idea that you can't form an addiction to it. I do. I, I think that's uh, that can certainly be a contributory belief um, or a barrier to, to treatment seeking. I also sometimes I wonder to myself though, to the extent to which it's specific to cannabis. I think that's just part of the again the beast or the nature of addiction is sort of questioning: Do I have a problem or not? And where is that threshold? Because we see that with alcohol too, because alcohol is very normalized in society. And, you know, people are doing that, you know, everywhere you look. And so, um, that is, again, it's sort of, I see that on the same lines. Um, that's why we ha- you have things like low risk guidelines mm-hmm. and you have, you know, you can find self-report screeners. But again, it's, it's hard for people to know. And so yeah. um, usually uh, sometimes it helps. Um, you know, sometimes people are told from outside sources that they have a problem, and then that usually that's an impetus to looking uh, inwards. Actually, I, I have a related question. Uh, I wonder if you're starting to see one, uh, if people have been starting to shift, because one uh, after the legalization of cannabis here in the U.S. and different states and Colorado, there is some preliminary data showing that, for example, DUIs in Colorado went down. So while uh, after legalization of cannabis, all of a sudden, a number of people perhaps were dra- driving drunk, uh, were doing less. And the hypothesis was that perhaps it was being because people were using um, cannabis and it's, and they like some stress like indica, you don't necessarily want to go out and drive, but rather just kind of stay and veg out, you know, both the stereotype of the, of, of the particular strain, but also that, you know, this, the, the phenomenology of the drug. So I'm curious as to whether you've had clients or uh, in the clinic who perhaps had problems with alcohol use and they started either self-medicating or perhaps some of their suggestions, someone is like, maybe you want to switch to, because of the you know, the sedative effects and the anxiolytic effects of both alcohol and, and cannabis tend to be similar, whether you've seen people who have shifted and what do you think about that? And it has happened. It, yeah, really fascinating question. I'd be interested to see data on that. I don't, um, on the top of my head, you're, ba- mm. you're speaking to the idea of uh, substance substitution. Basically. Yeah, exactly. And so, and so whether that can, um, be helpful for mental health. Um, anecdotally and clinically, I, I don't see much of that, but that might mm. 
it might reflect our population because when you get people with moderate to severe um, addiction um, concerns, they tend to be comorbid anyway. So mm, using mm. alcohol or also using cannabis and, and cannabis tends to be a really prevalent one across the board. Um, and so, you know, someone might have a severe opioid uh, addiction or severe alcohol addiction and maybe a mild or moderate cannabis addiction. So um, it's, it's right. hard to tell the extent to which is that cannabis, um, you know, decreasing the severity of other addictions. And in, in the U.S., there has been increasing attention towards the opioid epidemic and how the best ways to approach that and, and just how devastating and heartbreaking it is to have lost so many people either who have who have died or whose lives have been dramatically um, turned upside down because of opioid addiction. And, and the question has been, how do we best help people and, and turn this around? And I, I'm curious, in light of your the data and your clinical experiences, what you would view as the most effective approach to curtail this crisis? Yeah. It's not a softball question, Katie, but it's a, it's a really... Yes, <laughs> we told you we are going to lull you into this false sense of confidence and wham! In, in 20 words or less, please. I'm just kidding. <laughs> in, a, in a tweet, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Make sure you step outside. All of You mentioned earlier that you wanted, didn't want to step outside the bounds. And uh, really, please feel free to do so. This is It's kind of a brand here. It's what we do. <laughs> I appreciate that. No, I do have thoughts about it. I've written a little bit about it with some colleagues. Like, it's it's such an important topic. For me, what's helpful is I conceptualize the opioid or overdose epidemic as a multi-layered. It's multi-layered and it's multi-causal problem. And so that means it demands an equally multi-pronged solution. So we know opioid addiction develops as a result of many interacting biological, psychological, social factors. And so to effectively address it and treat it, we need approaches that are targeted at each biopsychosocial level of analysis. So that's an approach that incorporates evidence-based psychological and pharmacological treatments, coupled with a system that allows people to easily access those treatments wherever they are in their motivation to change and wherever they show up or wherever they present, whether it's family physician offices or eMERGE departments or chronic pain centers or safe injection sites or addiction treatment programs. Um, with, respect to, with respect to mandated treatment, I'm not, I'm not really a fan because I don't think it's supported by the evidence and I think it runs counter to the spirit of addiction treatment. Um, I, I, I recall reading work by uh, Cam Wild. He's a researcher in the, at the University of Alberta, and he he wrote a lot about mandated treatment for addiction um, more generally. And an important finding that really stood out for me was this idea of perceived coercion. So basically, mm. whether people were coerced into treatment by the legal system or even by family and friends, basically the idea is that uh, poorer outcomes or more poor outcomes were linked to a greater perceived coercion. So when people right. perceive that they're coerced, that's not good. And that makes sense, right? Because we know that the phenomenon of psychological reactance means that, mm-hmm. you know, if you tell someone what to do, they're tempted to do the opposite. And of course, we know in psychotherapy work that it's important to foster and cultivate things like someone's personal control, 
their their self-confidence, their self-efficacy. We want to increase their awareness building and, and strengthen their commitment to, to making the changes in their life by using approaches like motivational interviewing. Um, and then I think another really important part of this uh, conversation is is this idea that that, um, that you said, which is medically assisted uh, medically assisted treatment for opioid addiction, mm-hmm. which the, the term I just found out this recently because I was using that term a lot, but even that term is outdated now given the evidence base. Oh, um, okay. Because I, I recently came across some literature that suggested we ought to use opioid agonist therapies or OATs, mm-hmm. and the reason for that is because the OATs are the best treatments that we have, even just as standalones, so they're not really assisting anything. But that, that's something I was doing for a while, too. And if I remember correctly, um, the research shows that OATs, so things like Suboxone prescriptions and methadone, they mm-hmm. reduce the risk of death up to 59% compared to no OATs or no medication. Right. And that, that's well, a big deal, yeah. right? And so, and the evidence supports the idea that particular kinds of psychotherapy, they should be delivered whenever possible but they should be second to OAT because the strength of evidence is kind of mm. weak and it's mixed. And as to whether adding psychotherapy to OAT is needed to reduce opioid use, that's not to say, I mean, there's, there's no doubt that psychotherapy is, is beneficial and it's needed to address comorbid addiction and mental health difficulties. It's just mm-hmm. to say that OAT is definitely first line and mm-hmm. it can be uh, standalone. Now, unfortunately, access to OATs can be a big problem. I'm, yeah. I'm less familiar with the U.S., but I think it's a bigger problem there. And and back to your earlier question, Katie, I think that can be really exacerbated by stigma uh, towards the use of medications to treat addiction, both within the addiction community and outside of it. Because in the addiction community, that's something that comes up too sometimes with um, people that are really married to uh, 12-step based models. Right. You know, there, there's a literature there that it ha- does have some empirical support, but there's also underlying beliefs about 12-step um, based programs that say things like we need a strict abstinence-based approach to addiction recovery, and that doesn't drive well when you have medications that are really helpful for addiction, like right. OATs, or even right. alcohol-based um, medications like antabuse or naltrexone, which are evidence-based as well. It was like there's just so much there to unpack, and I, I want to highlight further, you make a lot of good points, but highlight that... Um, perhaps the, the tension within this, this larger system. So the interaction between the legal and psychological system treatment communities that take different approaches and have different beliefs as to how this problem should be tackled. So you take something that is kind of like mandatory treatment and that sounds good perhaps in, in theory, but it could be counterproductive for people who are in treatment because as you said, it may create reactants and this, it may have the counterproductive effect. And in addition, there's a large belief within, certainly in here in the US in the justice system, when people are mandated to treatment, oftentimes that goes to, the, the, the oftentimes the only available options, uh, even for opioid uh, addiction is going to be a 12 step uh, process or a 12 step um, self-help group. Uh, or societies, and and as you mentioned, uh, abstinence is the kind of key or the, the key goal for them. In addition to other kind of more men, you know, other uh, maxims and principles that they have, that for some people work very well, and for some people doesn't. And for those who doesn't, they tend to have severe problems. It, it can be kind of further uh, send them down the line uh, or down kind of this spiral. So it's it's really important. I, I like that the the balance and kind of the, highlighting the importance of um, sorry, not medication-assisted therapy, but opioid agonist 
treatment. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Therapy. Yeah. And yeah. uh, therapies and uh, and uh, the difficulties that it may face in in society at large. And I actually have another related question to it because you you wrote an article an article on this, so I want to talk about that. But I know Katie had another question. I want to make sure that she gets that in. No, no, you go ahead, Leo, because I want to make sure we save time to talk about trolls. So. Oh yeah, no, that's <laughs> important. We got it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Leo, if I may too, I just yes, want to add, like, you're making such great points, and I see it play out clinically too, which is really tough. Like, I, it's not uncommon for me to have um, patients or, or clients who are experiencing opioid addiction. They're mm. they're connected to our programs, or they're called our opioid dependence programs. So they're getting their methadone or their suboxone, and and they're, they're doing well on that because it's helping them not go to the streets and get fentanyl. And then during our, our, our psychotherapy conversations, we're having to challenge beliefs like I'm, so, I'm still a junkie because I'm right. still using right. um, this medication. And it's, it's really tough on people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, that was exactly the second point. And you, you wrote a column in Psychology Today, and we link this in, in our website, about Andrew Yang's. Uh, and I'm a huge I'm a Yang Gang member. I should yeah. say. Uh, from, we'll, I go you don't have that little blue hat next to your name on Twitter, though. Isn't that a Yang Gang thing? It is a uh, That is Yang Gang. And, and you're, you're going to laugh, but I couldn't figure out how to find that specific little hat. I came <laughs> up after. intended to have the little blue hat next I to tried. Me. I tried. Uh, so I get, instead I have two Yang, I, I, still ha- I still have two math, money, marijuana t-shirts instead. So there's that. <laughs> In your private life, just not yeah. Maybe maybe I'll pro- maybe I'll tweet, tweet tweet myself wearing the the, the Yang Gang T-shirt. But I'm a, yeah, I, I, I am a big. I, I really supported his from the beginning. I go way back. I, I'm talking like way back. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, awesome. I was fascinated by that. Before he support. was cool. What's that? Before he was cool. Before he was cool. Yeah, when people were like, who? And I still, when I mentioned it to my students, they're like, who's Andrew Yang? I'm like, oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> you made Andrew Yang cool. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to take credit for it, but, you know, certainly, in my, certainly within my household, I did. <laughs> I turned my partner into it. But it is, but seriously, so then um, it was very interesting in his universal income. And he just, his approach to everything. He, I think he is concordant with a lot of the stuff that we Many psychologists certainly want to approach this, like, what is the science? What is it? What does empiricism say about a problem? And then let's do that, because why would we not? Um, and so I like that approach. But in, in his proposal for the treatment of um, opioid assistment uh, or opiates was mandated treatment. And essentially for people who had an overdose to mandate them into uh, into treatment for three days. And I have to admit, you know, I, I don't think I was super familiar with that aspect. But when I read your your column, and I, if you had not seen it within the context of your column, I probably would not have thought anything about it until you spelled out the, the, the problems with that. So I wonder if you can maybe touch a little bit about, yeah, why would, why would it be a bad idea, perhaps, uh, as, as the data show, that getting a person who may have had an opioid uh, overdose to mandate them to treatment for, for three days or something, what would be problematic about that? Yeah, th- thanks for saying that. Um, and I got... I don't. I admit ignorance to a lot of Andrew Yang's policies, but that's just one that caught my attention. Um, sure. And I, I, I think I wrote that article because I think that his heart was really in the right place with that policy. We, he wanted to address the opioid epidemic, okay. um, but I just that that specific um, suggestion or idea that we should mandate for three days after an overdose it just really rubbed me the wrong way because again it just it kind of ran counter to 
again, the, the spirit of addiction treatment, which I think is really captured in uh, philosophies like client-centered care and, and motivational interviewing approaches, which are basically not telling someone what to do, but trying to meet them where they're at and kind of guide them along. And then the, the three days thing just really threw me off because it seemed just so arbitrary. And there's there's obviously there's no data at all to, to suggest that. And so that's the reason I wrote that was to just draw attention to it and to maybe uh, highlight that maybe there's a better way to do that. But um, yeah, I didn't, I don't, it, it seems, that seems very coercive. And if, you know, going back mm -hmm. to that idea that I mentioned with Cam Wilde and per perceived coercion, that, you know, I would very much perceive that I'm being coerced if I am being coerced by going to treatment for three days. I just don't know that it would accomplish very much. And there's no data to support that. Yeah, great. Thank you. Thanks so much for talking about addiction and substance use. Before we run out of time here, I want to make sure that we talk about another passion of yours, which is pushing back against pseudoscience and misinformation. And certainly we could hear that weaved throughout all of the discussion that we had prior to this. Um, one one thing that I'd, I'd love for you to share with our listeners is talk a little bit about science up first and how, well, let's start there. Can you tell us about Science Up first? Definitely. Thanks so much, Katie, for uh, giving airtime to this, because to me, it's such an important initiative. And yes, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously very passionate about uh, calling out pseudoscience and health misinformation, because I think it's just part of our ethical duty as uh, healthcare professionals um, to promote and practice evidence-based patient care and, and uh, public health. Uh, but the Science Up First initiative is something that I'm, um, really thrilled about. It, it's a Canadian initiative, which uh, initially began um, mm. through uh, conversations with Timothy Caulfield, who's a uh, public health scholar at the University of Alberta, and uh, Senator Stanley Kutcher of Nova Scotia, who's wow. uh, a, psychi a psychiatrist by training and a champion of evidence-based uh, policy. And basically, Stan and Tim mm. were talking, and they, they noticed there's an infodemic going on, especially related to COVID-19. And so they, especially on social media, and so they decided to recruit uh, a national, Canadian national coalition of uh, scientists and communicators and health experts with this idea that we want to engage and empower Canadians to work together against misinformation. Uh, I'm super humbled and honoured that they invited me to help out with that. And That's awesome. I'm, I'm just floored by it. Like, you go on to a Zoom meetings with these folks and there's just so much expertise. It's overwhelming. Mm. Like infectious disease experts and geneticists. And, you know, I feel really out of my league, but I'm, I'm happy to be there. Um, but basically the idea of the initiative is it's an anti-misinformation campaign on mm -hmm. all of social media. So it's on Twitter, it's on Facebook and Instagram, and soon it'll be on TikTok. And the whole idea is to flood and disrupt social media in an effort to debunk misinformation and really mm -hmm. want to, we want to amplify the best science-based content that we have using evidence-based uh, guidelines that, um, that Tim has been working on. So basically uh, what we're doing now, we're initially focused on misinformation and conspiracy theories uh, specifically related to COVID-19 and the vaccines. But, mm -hmm. it, but we, we envision this framework to be extended beyond the pandemic to address other kinds of misinformation um, uh, re related to health and science, uh, including mental health. So basically what the initiative looks like is people follow us at scienceupfirst.com or scienceupfirst is the, the handle. They can go to our website, scienceupfirst.com. They can use our hashtag. And it's basically a living and breathing 
active movement where we're getting people to uh, really amplify and and uh, the best evidence-based uh, information that we have because we want to drown out all of the other nonsense that's out there, to be honest. And amazingly, uh, I have some data from the, in the first, we just launched in January, the, the last week of January. Mm-hmm. And that during that week, it inspired over 8,500 people to post about it with our hashtag. And mm-hmm. it got over 42 million views across social media platforms. So everyone's wow. very excited about that. Yeah. That, that's amazing. I just love this initiative so much. I This might be the thing that really tips me over to finally join TikTok because I hear more and more <laughs> clients getting mental health information <laughs> from there. And I mean, part of why we started this podcast was for similar purposes to that's combat right. misinformation, um, share science in a way that's accessible. So I really love what you're doing with Science Up First. And it's great to hear that it's having such a huge impact already. Thank you. Yes, I appreciate that. It's also what got me to join TikTok uh, kind of hiddenly right now. But yeah. Well, congratulations. Now the Chinese government has all of your information. I hope you're happy. <laughs> <laughs> so am I, the one of my concerns about TikTok, if we can get personal here, is that I... Chinese government. <laughs> well, actually, my concern is more um, self-focused, which is that <laughs> I... In the past, I've spent too much time on Twitter, and I'm afraid oh. with TikTok because the way that my patients have described it to me is they have your likes and algorithm, and you get served up all this great stuff, and you get lost and like for hours and do nothing else. Has that been your experience, Jonathan? I, I'm just I'm treading lightly with it for now. I don't I don't even know that I have a profile photo on there, but I I, I mine it for a good good information because I see some great videos. But yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I've already been, you know, I've I've gone down a few rabbit holes similar to Twitter, okay. but um, but with but it's more visual, right? Okay. Yikes. Yeah, I, I have very mixed feelings about it, other than the fact that you know the rumors, not the rumors, but the fact that you know the Chinese military may be behind it. Uh, but let me put my tinfoil hat aside for a second, and I would say that it's uh, kind of your I, I I'm treating lighter. Uh, Katie's more active in Twitter than I am. And I find that it's just, it's interesting and it can be fun, but it's also a time, it just, it really consumes a lot of time and you're feeding this artificial intelligence machine to serve you content that it, it's learning. It's almost like, an, right, like addictive. We would almost do a whole show on uh, perhaps compulsive behavior and uh, internet uh, compulsive behavior and stuff, because it's, it really is learning what is it, the things that really kind of tickle your mind uh, and then yes. you want to stay and engage with it. and. Oftentimes, I have found that with Twitter, I've been distancing myself a little bit just because I'm like, there's a lot of just shouting matches. I'm like, I, I, this is not contributing to my 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 overall happiness here. So it's a it's a really interesting thing. But uh, I don't know if there's dances involved, then maybe I will join TikTok. <laughs> well, that's why I, I that was the one thing I don't I don't know that I could make videos because there are a lot of good dancers on there, and I. I can see myself making a video of myself dancing, but I think I, I want to check it out because the point is, if that's what people are consuming, then it, it serves mental health professionals well to be aware of what it is, you know, and, and what's going on and what they're hearing. So I that, like that you're meeting them where it's at. That's so well said. And because part of the mandate or the uh, of, of science up first, too, is to really adapt content to various audiences too and so mm-hmm. uh, that, that's yeah it's important socio-demographic and different cultural um 
audiences, but also like even, yeah, like there's probably, I don't, I don't know the demographics of TikTok, but it's probably a bit different than it is Twitter. And so we want to, we want to expand our reach. That's Better right. dancers for sure. <laughs> the dancers are much better on TikTok. <laughs> um, Maybe it's a reason to take a dance class. I, I'm yeah, that's true. That. <laughs> that's true. I think it's. I think that would be a good use of my time, actually. So uh, that's that's a good idea. Um, or there might be some instructional TikTok dance videos. There you as go. A start. That's so, it. I might join you in that. Cause, yeah, <laughs> I, I can't do that either. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I I think I like Twitter because it is mostly words, but I understand a lot of people prefer videos, so it is good to be open and and find ways to be more effective to reach people. One of the downsides that I want to make sure we talk about with the couple minutes we have left is that some people don't like spreading scientific don't like those who spread scientific information, for example, if they're in disbelief about it, or sometimes if they've just had bad experiences Mm -hmm. and the content that you share um, hits them the wrong way, or just because there may be trolls, right? They kind of want to provoke or whatever it is. So how have you dealt with people who have responded negatively to the information that you've shared on Twitter or elsewhere? Right. God, trolls are the yeah. worst. Um, <laughs> really are. I say they still demand a toll in this day and age, but it's more of a stress-related <laughs> one. <laughs> uh, I, I feel quite fortunate, to be honest, because I've learned to cope quite well, but despite receiving a lot of it, and I know that's not the case for everyone. Um, and uh, as I know, as you know, Katie, you've seen my social media encounters with, with people like that, and I've written about it. And to this day, I still have people that are, are trolling me, they, they kind of transform into online harassers, to be to be honest. Right, it's probably yeah. happening right now. And that's not an exaggeration because people yeah, send me sure. screenshots. And, you know, and I've talked to, to lots of people in, in similar boats, like, again, like Tim, Timothy Caulfield and Dr. Jennifer Gunter, who have way uh, bigger platforms. And they, they get it all the time. And we even share quite a few uh, harassers. Mm. Uh, Tim is really awesome because he, he actually wrote a piece and conducted a brief qualitative analysis on his hate mail to actually oh, learn from cool. it, which is I thought oh, well. super amazing. But in any event, I, I'm being facetious here, but I think that the online trolling and harassment of scientists and health professionals is actually a growing and serious problem. And mm-hmm. I think we really saw, I don't have data to back that up, but it was just my eyes. I think it really exploded with COVID. And yeah. I think there is a small literature on this topic. And with respect to, you know, there's no one size fits all approach to handling it because again, trolling itself is complex and, and multi-causal mm-hmm. and it ranges in severity, but I'd say there are surefire ways to cope. So I've talked to a lot of people that have experienced it. And I think number one is um, social support is really paramount and it can be tremendously beneficial to relate to people going through it and to express your thoughts and feelings on it. There's a variety of online resources that can be helpful for people. Um, I love the the lesson and now cliche from operant and classical conditioning, which is don't feed the trolls. Right. The, right. the reason for that is that if you, if you deprive the experience of pleasure from someone who engages in trolling and harassment, uh, the idea is that they'll learn that they cannot derive pleasure from trolling you and they'll likely desist. And so the block function on social media is a really great way to do that and to assert that boundary. However, it doesn't always work. And in fact, much of my online harassment happens behind blocks um, in the form of things like libel and character assassinate, assassinations. Wow. 
Uh, and I've talked to a lot of people who have been steady victims of trolling and harassment. And obviously it can take a toll on people and it yeah. can result in many mixed emotions. And so in that vein, I'd say that it's important to develop and practice mental health coping skills, you know, whether DBT or CBT skills. And, and of course, if it becomes too much, reaching out to professionals, if it's unmanageable. And, and obviously, if people feel threatened or, you know, they should call the police or even seek legal counsel. But for wow. me, I try, I try hard not to feed them. Um, but I'm not always successful in doing that. Well, they're they're <laughs> yeah. very good at evoking responses in my yeah. limited experience. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, that's honestly that's the thing that keeps me from fully engaging a lot because I'm like I I I immediately can see like if I want to express this and I I can see somebody be like uh and then I don't want this coming back, especially in academia these days it can be a little bit. I don't know, fraught uh, in many ways. I'm like, this is the tweet that's going to end my career. So I try to be kind of sparing with it. Uh, and also just like, uh, I don't want to engage in that. It seems like a headache because I do tend to be like, oh, no, I am going to convince you. And I'm like, you know what? No, I, this is not going to work. So yeah, we'll see. It's, we'll see. It's really, it's really tough. And I, I hear that 100%. And it's such a common sentiment. And part of yeah. it, too, like it, it really irks me because I think that's part of the goal of trolling and harassment is to silence people, right? And, right. Exactly. Um, that's yep. exactly right. It's it's really tough. I, I feel fortunate because I, I have a lot of support from my regulatory body, from my professional association, from my university, because, you know, mm. obviously social media is such a bizarre world where it merges the personal and professional lives. And I don't think anyone really has a roadmap for how to do this properly. But I think as long as you're, you, you know, I'm, whenever I'm tweeting, I'm thinking, am I doing this in the service of ethical, competent patient care? And if I'm not, if I'm tweeting personally, is this okay? Right. Mm -hmm. Would I, would I allow a previous supervisor or a patient to see it? And if I'm comfortable with it, then, then that's that it's, everyone's going to have their own different thresholds. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Jonathan, I I can't thank you enough for making time for us today. I really, really enjoyed having you on. Where can our listeners find you to follow you on social media? Twitter is probably the best spot for me. Um, So that's at Jonathan Stea, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-S-T-E-A. Excellent. Thank you so much. not allowed. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) no trolls allowed. Hi, Psychodrama listeners, Leo here. As Katie mentioned at the beginning of the show, we would like to thank you for listening and your support in the past year. We could not have done without you. For this next year, we're working very hard on new ideas to keep the show interesting and engaging. You may have noticed that we have new original music, which is composed by my good friend Leo Borges, who is also part of the team helping us adapt into Spanish the episodes on the legalization of drugs. Stay tuned for more and let us know if you have any ideas about topics that you would like covered. In the meantime, stay safe and until next time.